The other day, my sister Grace, she put up a photo on Instagram and she talked about how she has a cold, which is interesting in itself, but yeah, not that interesting. But she wrote this, it was really beautiful. It was about her sister Diana, who brought essential oils over to her house, right, to make her, make her get better quicker. In this caption, she wrote this, I'm 31 years old and I'll forever be the baby of this family. Thanks, sis. Love heart emoticon. Now, that's, that's cute, isn't it? It's, it's lovely. You know, when you see siblings love and care for each other, that's, that's very cute, Grace. Thank you for sharing that with the world. Now, that's, that's, now that's not the relationship I have necessarily with Grace. Uh, she's my little sister. I do love her. But you see, I'm the only brother amongst five sisters, six of us. There are six siblings in our family. I'm, I'm number five in line. Grace is number six. She's the youngest. She's the baby sister, like she said in her Instagram post. Now, my parents, my mom is here, she worked, my mom and dad, they worked seven days a week, 365 days a year um, while they, when they moved to Australia. That was their working life. They somehow managed to raise six kids. And now looking back, I think the message that we were meant to get was we're meant to look after each other, right? That meant growing up, I was usually stuck looking after my little sister, Grace. I got a photo of us, I think, when we were young, looking very cute and happy together. But that's not always the case. That wasn't always the case. I had to share my toys with her. I had to sit with her at the kiddie table. My older sisters had no time for us, so I was stuck with her, even though I just want to play games and do my own thing. You know, actually, I actually always wanted a brother, in fact, and she knows this, a younger brother to kick a soccer ball with, to learn kung fu with, to play video games with. with. While my older sisters were too busy, they were acting like they were too mature for us, I was stuck with my baby sister, Grace, who to me, sorry to say this, was clingy, spoiled, and always cried when I didn't let her play with me. Yes, I was a jerk. Uh, I used to use her when I needed someone to play a computer game with, but I'd reject her when she wanted to play with me and my friends who came over. You see, in my head, I had to learn how to get on, get on um, with life on my own. I had no sense of responsibility to care for her. I mean, love her, you know, she can take care of herself. And so there were times I would hurt her, both in my words and my actions, and there'd be times she'd want to hurt me because of the way I treated her. And now while you might find this, this photo of us really cute and happy together, as we grow up, we often raged at each other. We even got violent towards each other. This wasn't the type of sibling relationship my parents wanted us to have. I was meant to be my sister's keeper, yet part of me hated her and wished I had a brother instead. Now, some of you guys have brothers here, and you're thinking, Mikey, having a brother isn't always much better. Heidi shares with me that when she was growing up, her and her brother didn't always get along. Even though today you might see on her social media her brother laughing, sharing life together, sharing stories, they look like they're besties. Now, I wouldn't go as far as to say Grace and I are besties, but we're friends now, right? And we do love each other, we support each other, we pray for each other, I might even give her a hug here and there. We're on the same team, that's what matters. But you and I both know most siblings aren't always. Growing up with siblings, whether they're brothers or sisters, can really grind on us, right? We're, we're often pitted against each other. We see parents play favorites, and some of us uh, are ruined because of it. Some of us know what it's like to feel in the shadow of another. It might make us depressed, bitter, or angry. And whatever it might be, we haven't always at times felt that, that love defined that relationship or that you're on the same team. Deep down, we've all felt that brokenness, haven't we? But some of us here might not have siblings, 
But we all do know what it's like to feel brokenness in our relationships with our friends, with people who are close to us, people like a brother from another mother or a sister. We know what it's like to feel bitterness, to, to, to envy someone, to feel jealous, to feel hatred. Some of you guys here might still have relationships with people in your life today where people still don't like you. I know there are people in this world, in Brisbane in fact, who still hate my guts, who don't like me. I, and I know I, in my heart, have bitterness towards others too. It sucks. It's not nice to be hated and it's not nice to feel anger towards another. It's why in our world we always talk about things like you know, love wins and we, all call, and we talk about tolerance because no one likes hatred. No one likes divisions. You know, we don't want that to be part of our humanity. It's why in our individualistic society we read articles like on Humans of New York and we hear about the stories that inspire us and encourage us of, of people banding together. See, deep down humanity believes that society will be most harmonious when there is acceptance and love for another human being. Yet although that's what we might want to believe, in reality, we instead see and experience anger, envy, jealousy, which leads to disunity and hatred. And why is it so hard to love one another? How can we live as God intended us to live? Here in Genesis 4, we're seeing that broken relationships have been around since the beginning. Our story begins not just with our own lives, it begins with God's story and the humans he created. And last week we saw how sin entered our world through, through the attitude, the actions of Adam and Eve, but that led also to a, a bro- that led to a broken relationship with God. Well, we see brokenness in our world because that relationship with God has been broken, right? And today we're going to look at how sin affects not only our relationship with God, but also our relationship with one another. Let's get into this. Let's look at the two brothers in our story from verses 1 to 5, if you're following along with me. We've got two brothers in this story, right? Two brothers, two different professions. One is, has got the job of being a farmer who works the soil, the other a shepherd of flocks. And we're seeing humanity fulfill their roles as God's people, right? God told um, his people, multiply, fill the earth. The first sentence that Paul read for us was, Adam makes sweet love to his wife, right? They're fulfilling God's call to multiply and fill the earth. But secondly, we have the two guys, the two brothers, Cain and Abel, in their roles, what are they they're doing? They're taking care of creation, aren't they? They're making the most of creation. They're domesticating animals. They're cultivating plants. This is a good thing. This is what God had designed for them to do. This is everything that Genesis 1 and 2, um, God has said, this is what you should do as humanity. But that turns sour really quick, doesn't it? These two brothers, they're giving an, they come to God and they give an offering to him. Everything they have belongs to God, so this offering is like a dedication to God. Right? It's similar to what Chris was saying, our financial giving here at church is an offering to God from what he's given to us, what he's provided for us. And so we're told Cain gives the fruits from the ground he grows as his offering. Right? That's what he gives. Abel gives, we're told, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. What happens? God looks on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. Cain gets angry and his face was downcast, which just means he looked, he looked sad. He was depressed about that. Now we're wondering why. Why did God do this? Why did God choose Abel? Was God playing favorites? My good friend Iggy, who's come here before to preach, uh, he knew which one of his two brothers was a favorite. He always tells me this. The one who got the good grades. The one his parents would boast about to their friends. Iggy and his other brother always felt like the rejects because this favored brother was taller, more athletic. He didn't need glasses. He was smart. 
You know, the parents kept reminding Iggy and the other brother about it. But is that what God is doing here? Is God playing favourites on Cain and Abel's performance? Was it because Cain offered, I don't know, Brussels sprouts or capsicum, yuck, you know, and God thinks that they're, that they're going, that, that, that's gross, that Brussels sprouts are gross, and that he snubbed him for it? We don't know, right? From the text itself, it says, God favoured Abel and his offering. We're not told why, but there is an emphasis here, isn't there, on Abel's offering? He gave fat portions, and he gave fat portions from the firstborn amongst his flock. That says something, doesn't it? A hint, maybe. He decides to choose the, the choicest meat from his first lot of newborn animals, from the first crop, in a sense, and gives it up freely to God. Now, I'm not sure um, most people would do that when you could feed your whole family with it, but Abel freely offers it up to God here. Right, that might be a hint for us, but later in our Bibles, we're actually helped here a bit. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to it. Hebrews 11, I've got it on the screen as well. Hebrews 11:4. It's by faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. Right? How awesome is that? The Bible actually interprets it for us thousands of years later. It's like this one big story. It's all connected. And so the author of Hebrews here, he recounts that moment in history of Cain and Abel's offerings, and concludes that this is an action of faith on Abel's part. Abel's sacrifice is motivated by his trust and faith in God. He wants to give up the best meat from amongst the firstborn because he trusts God will keep providing for him, will keep providing good meat for him. Even if it comes at a sacrifice to his own livelihood and, and what he eats for dinner that night, this is an offering that symbolizes faith. All he has belongs to God, and he trusts that God will continue to provide for him. You see, it's not so much about the fruit or the, or, the, or the meat. It's about the heart and the motivation of the brothers, Cain and Abel, and the way that they saw God. God saw their hearts. And the favored one, and he favored one of them, the, the overflow of Abel's heart in his offering, the choice, of, the choice meat that was freely given. That's how you and I need to see faith as well, that, that it's one of trust. That God is God and we are not. And that he is the one who saves us and provides for us. And isn't that true of the Christian faith? That our faith isn't what we do, but that what God has done for us. Believing that there is a God is, is one thing, but to have real living faith is to trust that God saves us. He provides for us. He's the giver of all that we have and all that comes to us. He alone is sufficient. If that's true, if that is true, doesn't, doesn't he deserve wouldn't we respond to, to give him the best of us, the best of our offerings? Like in any relationship, I, I have a wife that, that loves me and cares for me. Wouldn't then I dedicate the best of my love and care and time for her more than others? Is that how Cain in our story today sees God? Does he put his faith in God to give, provide, and ultimately save? Does he know that God has saved him? God sees Cain's heart. The offering is, is, is an outward sign of the heart. Meat or grain doesn't matter. Both are acceptable in themselves, but we're not told that Cain gives the choices of his fruits, of his produce. Cain's offering shows that his faith isn't in God, but instead his favor is, 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 is in his favor. Right? He, he thinks that if he'll just get something, if he just gives something, I'll get blessed if I give a bit of my fruit to God. God will give me more stuff. He, what Cain does is he misses the whole point of things, doesn't he? We see that in his reaction. Cain gets angry. His face falls when he isn't favored because that's what he wanted more than anything. 
He gave with the intention of wanting something in return. This is what sin looks like. When we don't get the things that we want, or we don't get the things that we think we deserve, it, it manifests itself. Manifests itself in anger, jealousy, bitterness towards others. And what we're seeing here is a bit of self-entitlement happening here, aren't we? There's a need for validation. The heart of Cain is one that wants to be recognized. He wants praise. He wants recognition. He thinks he deserves that. When he doesn't get it, like a little kid, he gets angry, jealous, and bitter towards his own brother. But when I reflect on my own heart, I know I can respond with these emotions as well. Bitterness, anger, jealousy, envy, they aren't foreign to me. And I'm sure they aren't foreign to you as well. And I think, honestly, there's a bit of Cain in all of us. We get jealous when some, someone else gets the recognition and not us. We get angry when we believe we put in so much hard work, but someone else gets the promotion, the praise, the validation. We get jealous if we see our good friend hitting it off with someone else, or when we scroll through social media and see the successes or the invites of other people. Don't we? Have you ever been, have you ever been angry? Bitter, envious, judgmental, even hateful towards your brother, sister, or friends. Guys, we need to call this out as what it is. It's the sin of our hearts. And what sin does is, is sin is anti-God and anti-social. Cain makes an offering to God because he wants something in return. And ultimately, he's motivated by greed, not gratitude. And when God says no, things get uncomfortable. Let's see what happens next from verse 6. We read that God approaches Cain and, and asks him, what's wrong? Why are you feeling this way? Why are you angry and depressed? If you, if you do what is right, then you'll be accepted. If you don't, then here's the warning. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You see, right now, the sin in Cain's heart is really subtle. But now God wants to warn him that sin is dangerous. He says sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you to consume you, to master you, to rule over you. We need to learn something from God's warning here, don't we? This description here conjures up an image, doesn't it? What does it conjure up to you? Sin crashing out your door? I think of an axe murderer. I don't know about you. An axe murderer, when you walk into the dark room and the axe murderer is there and he's about to kill you, that sort of thing, crouching out your door. But maybe not for you, maybe. I think what the Bible wants us to conjure up is maybe more like, a, like, a, like an animal in the grass, like a t crouching tiger right, in the long grass, ready to pounce on its prey. I don't really, I don't have a cat, but I've seen cats crouch and pounce on their prey, right? They do that, but that, this is way more dangerous than a, a little pussycat, right? It's, sin is this crouching tiger, ready to pounce on us, ready to stick its fangs into our neck and bleed us out. And when sin shows itself, it affects us, it gets worse, it rules over us. It's like that bad habit that doesn't go away. It grows and consumes us. You know what I mean, right? It's like you, you know something isn't good for you, but you, you do it and it tastes good. You don't get caught, no one's hurt, so you do it again and again and again. And the boundaries are gone, your cravings are satisfied, and you feel that temporary high. But the point is, sin rules over us, and by the time it does, we don't even realize it. It all begins with an attitude, doesn't it? We do a little bit of, a sin, a little bit of sin, but then sin eventually does us in. It doesn't necessarily have to be addictions, but it can be. It could be that you could get, you're getting more and more impatient with people and, and rudeness and arrogance comes out. We see it in families, we see it in relationships, when we see treated, people treated wrongly. 
I often think about um, the fathers in this world when we raise up sons that are raised as bitter, hateful young men. They say they won't ever forgive their dads. I've heard that so many times from people. I had a friend tell me that at, uh, in high school, he knew a guy who gymmed all the time. He got ripped, and his motivation was to get big enough so one day, one day he could bash up his own dad. Because he hated his dad that much. And that, that hate, that bitterness, that sin is crouching at our doors. That, it grows, doesn't it? And we justify it, but, but then that attitude of hate is then projected onto others. And we become hateful people and self-consumed. We rationalize it and it evolves into violence or, or abuse or something just as ugly. Sin becomes such a presence that it consumes and envelops us like a dark cloud. We can't be okay with it. It's crouching at our door like a tiger. It hides under the layers. On the surface, it, looks har- it doesn't look harmful at first. It's, it's the ones that we don't admit as well. The ones that we deny, that we rationalize in our head. You see, you know, we see our love for money and greed and we, we compare it with more wealthier people around us and we say, it's okay. It's okay if we're not that generous. There are wealthier people around. It's rationalized in our mind. Or our laziness and the passiveness is, is rationalized when we look at others and say, oh, they do it better anyways. We see our anger and rage and say, oh, well, she, he, he, she, he made me respond this way. I'm not usually like this. And we justify it in our hearts. When someone might bring something forward to us bring something up and, and one of our blind spots perhaps and we explain to ourselves and say well it's not as bad as that other person right do you see the danger there where we deny where we rationalize it you see how sin is crouching ready to pounce and before it's too late it masters us we become unforgiving people we become angry hateful people we got to see the danger the, the deadliness of it like a crouching tiger, we've got to be ready to run in the other direction when we see it. And that's what happens, right? The hate and anger for Cain here, it consumes him to the point of murder. Verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And you might feel like, like in our world today, in our society, we're more evolved, right? We're more evolved than Cain and Abel. Murder isn't on the cards. But isn't, is that true? It's not entirely unlikely, is it, when hate and jealousy overtake us? It happens in our world. Murder still happens in our world. It's tragic. But what sin has done is not just broken our relationship with God. It, it breaks our relationships with one another. You see, that, that, that hatred and division we see in our world isn't as it was meant to be. God has designed, had designed it so that we would live in harmony, with, in peace with one another. That there would be no hatred or jealousy or envy. That's the result of sin. Murder and abuse and violence towards each other, that is, that's because of sin. So now not only the, the vertical relationship with God has been severed, our relationships horizontally with one another has also been severed. See, the vertical and the horizontal has been affected because of sin. Sin is so toxic. And what sin does, it does really make us look inward, doesn't it? Look at the hearts of Cain and Abel. Abel is operating out of a place of thanks and joy. Cain is looking for validation and salvation by his offering. He wants the favor and he thinks he deserves it. And so the Cains in our world are the ones who are always comparing. They're always judging, always tearing others down. 
Because at the heart of it, they're looking for something to make themselves better. A sense of salvation found in what they do and how good they think they are. It's a heart that, that operates from a place of self-centeredness. And when that happens, we, we hear words like Cain's, don't we? Am I my brother's keeper? Why should I care for my neighbor? Why should I care about anyone else? But what if we operate from a heart of salvation and thankfulness in God? See, in our first week in Genesis, I said the story begins not so much with us, but the story begins with God. And here in Genesis 4, look at what God does. He sees the sin in Cain's heart, but he approaches him with gentleness. He asks Cain questions. Why do you look so sad? What's wrong? He gives him a warning about sin crouching at his door. He doesn't need to ask him these questions, though, does he? He's God. He knows his heart already. But he's pursuing Cain. He, he wants Cain to be aware of the sin at his doorstep. He gives Cain an opportunity to respond. He doesn't want Cain to be mastered by sin. He doesn't want any of us to be mastered by sin. But what happens? Cain murders his brother, and God has to respond. We see God's grace, but we also see God's justice here. From verse 10, what have you done? God says, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse. You're driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. God has to respond in justice. When injustice is done, he hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears it from the grounds of creation itself. God hears and feels the injustice, the innocent shed blood, something that God can't turn away from. And so Cain is cursed. And with Abel's death, it represents the spread of sin, not just vertically, it represents the spread of sin horizontally within humanity. It is the first killing, the first blood to be shed. You see, if we have sin in our hearts, if there are times when anger has caused us, if there are times when anger has caused us to lash out, times when we've been greedy instead of generous, the times we've been selfish and hurtful towards another, how does God in his grace, but also in his justice, respond to us. When we haven't treated others or with respect like we should, don't we also deserve then to be punished like Cain, if we're all a little bit like that? If we have that in our hearts, sin in our hearts? See, it's interesting, isn't it? Because thousands of years after Cain and Abel was another man, a lot like Abel, who came into our history. His name was Jesus. And we see a man here, the Son of God, come as a sacrifice for us. And there were Cains as well in the world during his time too, who had bitterness and hatred in their hearts. It was the Cains that put Jesus on the cross and put him to death. But it's there, it's at the cross of Jesus. We see both God's grace and justice meet, don't we? While Abel's blood was shed because of sin, Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood for the sins of humanity, for the sins of the Cains in this world, for people like you and me. And so when you go to another passage like Hebrews 12, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see what, what the author is saying here, while the, the blood of Abel cried out to God, Jesus' blood was the better word because he was the innocent one that dies for all of humanity. He becomes cursed on our behalf. So we don't need to get cursed he takes the sin for us so we don't need to get punished for our sin. Isn't that mind-blowing? The unjust murder of Abel introduces broken relationships into the world. 
But look at the unjust murder of Christ. It ironically heals them. That's what it means that he's the mediator of the new covenant. He comes with grace and justice through being the ultimate sacrifice for us. Jesus' death was a plan to restore our relationships with one another, first with God and then with each other, so the vertical and the horizontal. And Jesus has accomplished that for us through the innocent spilling of his blood for humankind. Isn't that amazing? You see, the story of death and murder and broken relationships is is tragic, even to this day, where we see the brokenness in our families between parents or spouses. We see it amongst our siblings in our workplaces, the, the gossip behind each other's backs. We see it in the racism and the abuse on our buses and trains. We've seen hatred and jealousy escalate, and we, we see the effects on our humanity. It's ugly. Yet Jesus brings healing to our relationships because we can operate out of a heart that knows the love and grace and favor of God in Jesus. We don't need to earn it. We don't have to feel like we're not good enough or unworthy. Jesus gives us that new identity where we can be God's children. We can operate out of a heart of grace and thanksgiving like Abel did. Because Jesus' blood was spilt for you and for me. You and I, we're loved. We're favored by God. Not because of what we do, but because of who he is. You see, our story is less about us, but all about God. You see, the problem with Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? Well, it's a wrong question. God doesn't want us just to keep an eye on our brothers and sisters. My mom didn't want me just to keep an eye on my baby sister, Grace. You see, God wants us to love our brothers and sisters the way that he's loved us. And so you read another passage. I've got one John here, chapter 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain didn't love his brother. That's a simple truth. Instead, he allowed sin to consume him, to master over him instead of love. He didn't see the grace of God. He gave an empty offering, hoping for some sort of reward, but he couldn't see beyond himself that he already has a relationship with God himself. When we know God's great love for us, we won't be consumed by anger, hatred, and jealousy. We've been saved. We can freely love God and love others because of Jesus. We can respond out of a wholeness, a fullness of knowing God's love for us. That's secure. And so because we know the undeserved life and love of God, it overflows, not inwardly, it overflows outwardly to our love for others, doesn't it? And so doesn't that change the way we see our siblings? Doesn't it change the way we see each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church family, those who might have hurt you? Doesn't it change the way we see our neighbors or even the stranger? Jesus didn't have to die. He didn't have to be his brother's keeper, but he chose to to restore us back to God and reconcile us with one another. Why is there still division in our churches today? Why do people often say that Christians are hypocrites, judgmental, hateful people? And, that's, and this is a sad reality because we still have to fight sin. Sin is still crouching at our doors. We don't love like we're called to love. And we're not ever going to be perfect at this, but... It doesn't have to be our reputation as a church, does it? 
We can strive to love even if it's hard. We can strive to love even if it hurts, even if, if it comes at a cost, because we've seen Jesus' love at the cost of his life. I don't know if you guys were up to, uh, up to date, but Nick did pray about it these past two weeks. It was headlining all the news, right? The, the story of the teenage Thai soccer team. They were stuck in a cra- cave after being trapped inside for almost over two weeks because of flooded waters. They were in darkness. They didn't have much food and air. And the whole world was behind them. Divers from around the world risked their lives to save the boys. Every news outlet is saying that tragedy brings out the best in humanity. Isn't that beautiful? You see, what the Bible intends for us as humankind, God wants us to flourish in unity, in love for one another. And our, and our world knows that as well. You see, that's the desire for God's people, to love one another. The world can see the worthiness of it because God was the one who designed it for us to pursue. When we see Jesus, we see the pinnacle of this brotherly love for us. He's a model for us to follow, sacrificial love in our horizontal relationships. Some of us here, we might not think of ourselves as sinners. We don't worry about the sin in our lives much. We don't think about it enough. I mean, we're not as bad as Cain. We don't murder anyone. We might not even think of ourselves as hateful. I mean, hate is a strong word after all, right? We might not kill, we might av- but, but, but we might avoid others. We might feel unworthy when we crave favor and validation, when we crave acceptance. And sometimes we respond in criticizing, or we find ways to bring others down so we can feel a bit better about ourselves, don't we? We gossip, we slander, we bitch. We draw attention to someone else's weaknesses and failures so we can feel some validation in ourselves. We put up the barriers. We want to protect ourselves. And so we love people within our comfort zones, people who are easy to love, who who are able to love us back. But that's not love, is it? Perhaps knowing that you're favored by God means that you can be glad when you see your brothers and sisters making progress. Instead of being jealous, you rejoice in their growth. Perhaps knowing that Jesus has served you will empower you to stop avoiding the people you think are beneath you and to take the initiative to serve those who are difficult to love. Perhaps knowing that you are worthy before God will stop you from lashing out in anger or self-hate even when you don't feel validated by friends and family because you're operating out of a security and confidence in your identity in Christ. Perhaps knowing that God has forgiven you and reconciled you to himself will today empower you to seek reconciliation and forgiveness from another. Simply just say sorry to someone that you've hurt. How hard is it to say sorry sometimes, eh? Perhaps knowing that God has lavished you with undeserved mercy and grace will stop you from playing the game of comparisons where you're constantly comparing your works with the works of another. You see, those who truly know God's love for them loves God and loves one another. That's the simple truth. But it's really hard to do, isn't it? Friends, we don't need more canes in our world. Canes are killing each other. They're stomping on each other's throats to get ahead. Canes are always fighting for validation to get status and recognition. We've been given a new identity, though. It's not based on our performance. We've been saved by our faith in Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Hate and bitterness and jealousy, they don't have power to to master us. Sin doesn't need to be our story. While my offerings to God are uh, often self-centered, Jesus' offering of perfection on our behalf was perfectly accepted for me and for you. Glory in that. Celebrate that. 
Our story can find its identity in the love and blood of Jesus. And we can flourish as humanity, as God's people, when we operate out of that love. See, part of our vision here at Providence is to be church loving one another. Why is that there? Because in humanity, loving one another is actually really hard to do, isn't it? That's why we want to strive towards it. I mean, it's an easy sentiment to agree with. Yeah, we should love one another. But it's really hard to do. The world believes it's important to do. But the reality is sin is crouching at our doors. Whether you've been at church for a long time or you're still new to the whole Christian thing, this is for me as well included. Our default is that age-old question, am I my brother's keeper? We live in our individualistic world where it revolves around me, my comfort, my happiness. And so I read this speech that was, that was really inspirational by um, the former president, Barack Obama. He gave it back in 2004, right before he became president. And it was so motivational. He said this, There is a fundamental belief that we're all connected as one people. If there is a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me, even if it's not my child. If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and has to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer, even if it's not my grandparent. If there's an Arab-American family being rounded up without benefit of an attorney or due processes, that threatens my civil liberties. It is that fundamental belief, it is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. It's what allows us to pursue our individual dreams and yet still come together as one American family. Out of many, one. Now, Obama became president later on, right? But you can tell why, right? He's tugging at the hearts of, of people. In all of us is that fundamental belief. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. Friends, that's so true. But it's more than that too. We see its fullest expression in the life and the death of our Jesus, our Savior. And it's through him that you and I, whether we are feeling the, the tinges of bitterness and anger or feeling ashamed and unworthy, that you and I can love and be reconciled in relationship with God and with one another because of his great love for us. Amen? Let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much that you love us, that you have shown us that in the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus through the gospel, Lord, we can know you. We're thankful so much, Lord, that uh, we can, because of that security, that identity in Jesus that we now have through, through faith in him, Lord, that we can, that sin doesn't have power over us. We don't need to let sin rule over us. Lord, we can pursue a love and a reconciliation that comes from you, that we see in you, that we see through Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus, Lord. We thank you so much for him and what he's done for us. Thank you so much that through him we can love one another, that we can restore, we can reconcile because because you've called us to love. And we know, Lord, it's through loving one another that our, our humanity, that us as a church family, that us as, as your people, it's, it's how we flourish. So we do pray, Lord, that you'll give us your spirit and help us to do that, help us to reconcile, help us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.